Last week I had assigned some homework, if you remember. It was Galatians chapter 5, and then I asked you if you would consider answering this question in your heart. Would you rather have your spirit or receive the spirit of Christ in your life? Because we've recognized that our spirit is corruptible, that it is full of sin, and at many times it can be self-centered, and that's the very thing that ruins relationships, and that's what we want to get better at is relationships. Let's read together Galatians chapter 5. It's page 946 in the Bible that's in the chair rack in front of you. It's written by the Apostle Paul. However, I want to have you recognize that though it was written by man, it was inspired by God. And so what's being said here are God's words spoken to your heart. Galatians 5, let's start in verse 16 together. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Anytime you hear the word flesh in this text, it's a reference to mean the way that you do things without God. It's a reference to say that there is something corruptible within you that maybe already is corrupted or has the potential to be corrupted by sin. The flesh is saying, I'm going to do something my way without the help or without the spirit of God in my life. It means it's fully you. Continues on, verse 17, for the flesh... For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not, uh, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You ever feel like you're, you got an angel on one shoulder and a little, little devil on the other, and it's trying to tell you to do right and to do wrong. It's because you're trying to hold on to two spirits. You're trying to hold on to the flesh. That's corrupted by sin, and you're also trying to welcome in the Spirit of God, and you are torn. You're a double-minded man. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 19 is oftentimes called the, the, um, the, uh, the fruits of the flesh. The act of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord. Uh, dissension, selfish ambition, jealousy, fits of rage, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you want to follow the flesh, if you want to be a self-centered person and not include God in your life, the scriptures tell us God's own word to your heart tells us that don't even start to consider heaven with God because that's not going to happen for you. God's got to be the center of your life. You've got to replace your spirit with his spirit. Look at verse 22. Don't you want these things? I do. These are called the fruit of the spirit. The fruits of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which means peace with people. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So by receiving God's Spirit, it will completely, radically change your life. And in changing your life, it's also going to change the way in which you relate to others. And let me tell you something. If you did the homework last week, you read Galatians 5, and you internally asked the question, whose spirit would I rather have, God's or to keep my own? And you said your own. Can I tell you something? I don't know who would deny greater love, 
lasting joy, increased peace, deepened patience, remarkable kindness, goodness that matches godliness, faithfulness that is flawless, gentleness that is genuine, and self-control that is solid. I think if you were to say you don't want that, but you want the fruits of the flesh, may I say what Jesus told a group of people that came to him and said the same thing. We don't want you, Jesus. We want something else. He had the harshest word for them, and he said, you're foolish. You're foolish. The choice is clear. You're foolish. And I know that sounds rough to hear that from a minister of the gospel that should say, God loves everybody, but God loves you so much, he wants to keep you from a dangerous place called hell. And he wants you to adopt his spirit, to receive his spirit. And we put that old spirit of our life to death in the baptistry, and we rise anew with his spirit, and we walk forward in grace. But may I say some words of warning for you that have the spirit of God within you, that have said yes to welcoming God's spirit in your life and receiving these fruits. Number one warning. First, the fruits of the Spirit are not a goal to obtain. Here's what I mean by that. Parents, have you ever said, I just wish I had more patience with my kids? Give me more patience and maybe I can develop, maybe I can read a book to get more patience. Or you looked at your spouse and said, I just wish I had more, more patience with my spouse. I have more patience with my coworker than I do with my spouse. And, and you think, maybe there's a book for that. Maybe someone can teach me how to have more patience. No, it's not a goal to obtain. You have to remember, as you welcome Christ's spirit in your life, these are things that are going to mature within you. That's why they're called fruits. Fruits just don't automatically stay there ripened, ready to eat. They they take time to mature. But here's why I am saying you should have more patience today than you had yesterday. You should have greater love today than you had yesterday. You should have a greater self-control today than you had yesterday because that's the marks of maturity. And like Jesus said in John chapter 15, those who are in Christ will bear much fruit If you welcome Christ's spirit in your life, you will bear fruit. It may take time to mature, but it will be there. Wait on it. Growth takes time. Secondarily, here's the second warning. The fruits of the spirit don't mean that Christians are perfect. It just means that Christians should be different. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're different. It means that you're showing greater love than the world has ever shown. You're showing greater self-control than those who don't have the spirit of Christ show. You're showing greater patience and gentleness and kindness that the world has never known because they can't receive it on their own strength. You see, you've tapped into a greater strength. Your well has gone deeper to a greater source of living water. That's the source of Jesus Christ. So don't think that you're perfect. Just understand that the Spirit of God makes you different. Can I point out some differences? Let's just look at the screen together. The Word of God versus the world's way of doing things. Here's the world's way of doing things when you find somebody. Try to find Mr. Right, Mr. Wrong, however you look at it. Find the right person. You know, you hear it said, the soulmate. You got to find your soulmate. I think God cringes when he hears that word, soulmate, because God says you can love anybody at any time. And it's not about feelings. It's about making a conscious decision to love that person. Then fall in love. I think that's like maybe like you fall into a ditch or something. I don't know. Some people have fallen into a love and felt like they were falling into a ditch. But what is falling in love exactly? I think it has to do with feelings, than it does with making a decision to love somebody and then fix all your hopes and dreams onto that person that you fell in love with, Mr. Right, Mr. Wrong, Mrs. Right. And then everything they do, you just say, honey, I'm gonna follow you to the very ends of the earth, to the moon and back for if failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Oh, I guess I didn't find my soulmate. My soulmate must be somebody else. I'll start again finding somebody else and then I'll fall in love with them, and then I'll fix my dreams to them, and then repeat, repeat. How many people you know have gone one, two, three, four, five, six, or on their seventh repeat? Here's God's way. Let me show you the difference. It doesn't mean it's perfect in your life, but it means it's different. Here's God's way. Become the right person. You become the right person. See, it's 
It's, it's, it's not you, it is me. I become the right person. I do that with the strength of God in my life. I walk in love. And it doesn't matter who I'm with. It's just a matter of who I'm walking with. It's not about finding the, the right person. It's about walking with that person and saying, I can love this person like God has demonstrated in our life. Fix all your hopes and dreams on on God, not on them. People are going to let you down. We learned about that last week. People will disappoint us. They'll drop the ball, and it's going to cause pain in our life. So put your hopes and dreams into God. He'll steer you, right? And what happens if failure happens in that relationship? Repeat steps one and two, three. You become a right person. You allow the fruits of the Spirit to grow into your life and to mature. Walk in love. You continue to walk with that person and with the strength of Christ, love them and fix all your dreams and hopes on God. You don't change partners. You continue to walk in love. And the standout difference is it's not you, it's me. You see, these things involve me. And when I allow God to reign in my life, my relationships are going to be able to overcome nearly every trouble that comes my way. And it's going to change the way in which I relate to my family and my friends and my coworkers and my classmates and my teammates. And the list continues on. And all of us, all of us, know a level of commitment that the world encourages. It's not a level of commitment that's very high. The level of commitment is when failure comes or occurs, find someone or something different. Just bail out on it. Because after all, they should be given to you as much as you're given to them. But let me tell you God's level of commitment. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's on the screen. It says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's God's level of commitment. That is an eternal and everlasting level of commitment. God's commitment to you is not based on what you do for him. It's based on the decision he made to commit to you. You see, it's not a 50-50 contract with God. It's not a contract at all. God actually sees the relationship that he has with you as a covenant. And let's get into the difference between covenant and contract for a second. Because I think when we look at a contract, we look at things like we're obligated. I have to. But in a covenant, we say, I have the opportunity. I want to love you. I want to follow you. I want to be in this relationship with you. And the differences continue from not just obligation to opportunity. It moves to what is uh, impersonal, to what is personal. It involves in something that I have to do, goes to involvement of something that I am. And this involves all that I am. I'm going to do this for you. It moves on from just being conditional, a contract. If you do your part, I'll do mine. To unconditional, I'll do my part whether you do yours or not. How about the contract side that says, there's leverage here. I look out for my own best interests. Loyalty. I'm looking out for your best interests. The contract says, that there's suspicion. I want assurance that you'll do your part. Ever heard of a prenup? Trust. I will certainly do my part. You can have confidence in that. The contract is business. What will it take? The covenant is relational. Whatever it takes. The contract is compromise. I'll meet you halfway. The covenant is sacrifice. I'll give you 100%. Whoever taught you that marriage was a 50-50 proposition lied to you. It's 100%. You give your all even when the all is not given back to you. Temporarily is the contract. Once all stipulations have met, I finally can be released. The covenant is permanent. I will continue to do this as long as I have breath. I will do this. You see, those without the Spirit have been led to believe that the commitment level is basically a contract level. But those who have received the Spirit of God recognize that you can do something greater in your relationships. You can heighten the loyalty that you've ever had to somebody ever before. 
Because you have God at work within you. You have a greater spirit, and you can bring something different to the relationship. Now, before we go any further, let's define commitment for a second. I found this definition this last week. It's a good definition, and maybe it's something you want to write down. Here's, here's how we're defining commitment today. Commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you set it in has left you. That's good. Saying you're staying even though the mood has passed and things have changed and the person is no longer the same person and the setting is no longer the same setting and the emotion is no longer the same emotion, you say, it doesn't matter. I've made a commitment here and the mood is gone, but I've remained. The mood has left, but I haven't. Commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you had said has left you. Now, that's not always easy, is it? You know, the divorce rate in the United States is actually going down. We used to always think it was about 50%. It's actually around 30% or so, which is a good thing. We should be like applauding what God is doing among us. But there's still 30 out of 100 people that say, you know what, it's not going to be death to us part. There's going to be something else there. And please don't misunderstand this. I'm not knocking on anybody who's divorced. Bethany's a great place for healing there. Bethany's a place that welcomes those that have found challenges in their marriage that have led for those two to say, we've got to break this off. As a matter of fact, next week and the weeks to come, we want to talk more about that, specifically about conflict and how you deal with that. And are there particular reasons why you should break off a commitment that you made that you said you'd do it forever? May you find healing in this place. May you find healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, Someone had said that one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do is to grieve the life of someone you have lost who is still living. Some of you know that pain. And it's not easy. Relationships are not easy. It's not easy to stay loyal. But may I assure you that you can stay loyal. You can. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ because he gives me strength. You can do all things through Christ because he gives you the strength. Now, here's the level of commitment that God expects of us. Let's turn to Ruth chapter 1. That's page 210 in the Bible that's in front of you. Ruth chapter 1, 4, chapter book. It's a small book, but it talks about a level of commitment that is uncommon in today's day and age. It teaches us that regardless of your circumstances, you can be loyal to somebody even when they don't present that same loyalty back to you. While you're opening there, let me just give you a brief background of the book of Ruth. The main character is the woman who it's titled after Ruth and her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. Naomi had two boys, and those two boys were married. One married a woman named Orpah, and another married Ruth, and those two boys die early on in the story. And now it's just Naomi and her daughter-in-laws that are left. Naomi is older in years. Uh, Israel, where she lives, this area of Israel where she lives, is experiencing tremendous financial economical hardship. She's penniless. She's helpless. She is nearly foodless. She has nothing to her name. She's got nobody left to take care of her. And she's encouraging her daughter-in-laws to go find men 
Because they're young and they're still attractive and there's still hope for them and they don't have to live like a a poor widowed woman because Naomi's husband has passed away and she's trying to get them out the door and saying, look, life will be better for you. Just leave me behind. And Orpah's like, yeah, I'm cool with that, right? I'm out of here. Orpah is the daughter-in-law that just says, see you later, mother-in-law. I'm out of here and I'm going back home. I'm gonna find me a man, but not Ruth. Ruth shows this uncommon commitment that you just don't see very often. And here's her story. Here's where it starts. Orpah has just said, see you later. And Ruth is about ready to say, no, I can't let go of you. Naomi, we're like peas and carrots here. Chapter 1, verse 14. At this, they wept it loud. Orpah has just said, I'm leaving. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Now listen to this imagery. This is amazing. 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go, you go. Or where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And where There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, I think that's like the lesser of words. When she was determined to go with her, she stopped urging here. Now here's the beauty of what we see. Ruth stayed with her mother-in-law. She was loyal to what she had said long after the mood she set it in had left her. And this wonderful story continues. And you see this man named Boaz show up in life that marries Ruth and becomes this foreshadowing of Jesus. Ruth, you discover later, a thousand years later, becomes like the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And she plays this important part in history because she stays loyal to her mother-in-law. Now, here's what I want to apply today. I want to apply this commitment to our life, and I want to do that the best way we can. But for you to apply it is not just to have an understanding of it. You have to act these things out. You have to act this out. Faith is not just understanding. Faith is action, isn't it? Faith is putting something into motion. And so some of you are like, give me the knowledge of it, but the knowledge of it here is just not going to work. You're going to have to live this out. That's the, that's the, that's the hard part of relationships. You've got to live this out. And so some of you, you're just saying, hey, I want to know more Bible, but I'm saying, would you just start applying the Bible that you know? So here's the Bible that we know. God desires commitment from us, a greater commitment than the world offers, a commitment that he has shown to us. That's what he wants us to show to others. So how do we do that? Well, first, first we say, I commit to prioritizing you. I commit to prioritize you. You know, as believers, we know that our very first and most important relationship should be the relationship that we have with Jesus, because it's only through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God the Father. I mean, if your relationship with Christ is on the back burner, you need to bring that up to the very forefront of your life if that's what you want for your life, because he wants that for your life. He wants that relationship to be number one. He's prioritized you, and He would love it for you to prioritize him. And that's when you're going to find your relationships working their very best. But I would assume the people that you want at the very top of your totem pole are family members, friends, uh, people like your, your spouse or your children or your parents. You want them right up here. Family usually comes first on the priority list. 
And your priorities aren't what you say they are. Your priorities are really revealed by how you live through your actions. Who gets the most of your time? Who gets the most of your cash? Who gets the most of your energy? I'd say whatever that is or whoever that is, that's, that's your priority right there. You know, I hear the line too often, well, I'm too busy. I just get so caught up in that. I just get too busy with work. I get too busy with sports. I get too busy with my hobbies that I just don't really prioritize right. I am tired of that line, too busy. Everyone is busy. Too busy just means you don't prioritize right. It means you won't put the right relationships up front. And when you prioritize someone in a relationship, you're telling them, I want you in my life and I'm going to sacrifice something to get you in there and to be up front. You know, there are so many things in my life that I prioritize wrong. But there's one thing that I seem to do right, and that is I prioritize my wife over my job, and I make a conscious effort to do that. Now, I don't always get that right with my kids, but for some reason, I do with my wife. And what I've discovered is that for so many people, love is spelled T-I-M-E, time. And it's not that you've given them time or put in the time. It's that you're spending your time wisely with them. And that the time that you've handed over to them, that it's meaningful and constructive time. It's not time sat on the couch together while you're looking at your phones. Or sat on the couch together and taken in a show. It's meaningful and and even trying to be memorable. This is how Jesus works with us. He prioritized us. He put us first. And here's what I'm saying. He prioritized you. I, I think you can prioritize other people. You have a spirit in your life. You can, you can have your spirit strengthened through Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 puts it like this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you catch it? Jesus did this. And now we have the strength to do what Jesus did because God's spirit is within us. Those fruits are maturing within you. You can do it. Why? Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If we want to up our commitment level to the commitment level that Christ calls us to is we need to look at someone and say, I commit to pursue you. Like Ruth, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I die. And there I'll be buried there. I'm going to chase you down like a $50 bill in the wind. You know? And then you keep chasing after it. That's how I'm going to go after you. You're going to be my pursuit in life. You who are married, do you remember the day? I mean, you were a hot pursuit for your spouse. Do you remember that? Can you remember that far back? When you were dating and you were in hot pursuit for one another. I thought about it this last week. And I remember when I was dating my wife, we would just kind of, mysteriously cross paths in the hallway, even though I wasn't supposed to be in the building, didn't have any classes in the building, I'd be in the, I'd be in the hallway. Or we'd go to the cafeteria, and, and there I'd be sitting in the cafe just at the same time, a few seats away or a table away, and I'd look up at her, and we'd make eye contact and say, this is weird, right, how we always see each other like this? This is crazy. I was in hot pursuit of my wife, and I have to admit, I'm not so much in hot pursuit, but there's some nights, there are some nights when I will climb into bed in the cover of darkness, and there'll just be this lump laying next to me, and I'll push on her, and I'll think, I hope that's my wife, I think that's my wife, I'll find out in the morning if that's my wife. <laughs> now, when she does that to me, she, well, the smell gives it away that I'm there, you know, she doesn't have to... But I am wanting to go back to this pursuit, this relentless pursuit to make her a priority, to make my kids a greater priority, the pursuit 
The psalmist recognized the pursuit that God had to us, and he recognized that we are inescapable. He said, I can never escape from your spirit. God, I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. God, I can't get away from you. You want to know why? Because he's passionately pursuing his people. And what do you do, though, when you pursue and someone pushes back and says, I don't want you. I don't need you around like maybe a daughter has said to you. You know, mom, just when we were younger it worked, but now it doesn't. I don't need your counsel. I don't need your friendship. What do you do? What do you do when the marriage starts turning that way and the relationship starts growing colder and is lukewarm and now you're realizing, oh, it's not the same, it's not the same heat that we once had here. I think number one, you got to recognize the relationship has changed. Recognize the relationship changes. Every six months, people change. Psychology has proven it. We always change. Every six months, we're changing. So important to live life together. The relationship has changed, but don't allow the change of the way you relate to change the way you love. Let me say that again. Don't allow the change that you relate to somebody change the way you love somebody. The relationship has changed, but your love shouldn't. And when we pursue one another, it certifies that we're growing together than rather than apart. Jesus told a story about this. He told a parable about the way he passionately pursues people. And he talks about someone who is lost. And when we say lost in an environment like this, we mean that's people that are just unaware that they're in their sin. They're unaware that they've hurt God. They're unaware of it. They're not intentionally trying to do it. They're just unaware. They haven't recognized that they need a Savior They haven't even recognized that they're lost yet. And Jesus says it like this in a parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. The pursuit of God. Because isn't it isn't it unsafe behavior to leave the 99 behind and passionately pursue the one? And to say, I get it. You've pushed me away. You've walked away from the fold. You've walked away from the family. But that's not going to stop me from pursuing you. Here's the third level of commitment. I commit to care for you as a prized possession. I would say treat others as you treat yourself, but I've seen how some of you treat yourselves, and I know how I treat myself, and I don't think that's a good place to start. So let's just start by saying, let's just start treating others like we treat something that we value in our life. I read this article last week that talked about the pampered, uh, the pampered life of a racehorse. <laughs> it was just some of the top horses in the world that have the potential to make their owners millions of dollars through their winnings, and it describes some of the elaborate barns, the elaborate stalls. Uh, One horse who was owned by a a sheik in Dubai, uh, he has converted over a a 747 aircraft and flies his horses to their events in that aircraft. Uh, Some horses have 24-hour veterinarian care. Um, All of them have staffs of nutritionists, trainers, masseuses, and handlers. I want to be a horse. In the article, interviewed a trainer that spent nearly 160 hours a week with a horse named Wizard. Now, there was 168 hours in the week. She spent 160 of those with a horse named Wizard. And she said, my husband has admitted several times. She has a husband. My husband admitted several years ago after the horse passed away at the ripe age of 29. 29. 
that he was jealous of wizard. I'd say so. The other, another trainer had said, you know, that's why I have two ex-wives. Sorry, but I'm not about to give up my love for horses for someone who can't accept what I love. Now, I think if you're in a relationship with either two, one of those, you know where you're at on the priority list. You're not very high. There's not a pursuit there for you. But I'd say to them, you know, why don't you start loving those in your relationships as you love that horse? What do you love that's possessional? And how could you start expressing that same kind of love and admiration towards the ones that you relate to? Imagine how your relationships would be renewed if you honored your spouse, if you treated him or her like a prized possession. Imagine how you would have the nature of your relationships changed if you started to honor your parents that way and you treated them like a prized possession, a treasure that has been found. You wouldn't let go of them. You wouldn't let a job get ahead of them. You wouldn't let uh, money get in the way of it. You wouldn't let a job, uh, a hobby get in the way. You wouldn't let inheritance get in the way of that relationship. You consider all that stuff rubbish. Husbands, listen to how Proverbs 31 talks about a wife, an excellent wife who can find. Notice the possessional value. She's far more precious than jewels. The man of Proverbs says, if you can't find it in your heart, to love her. If you don't know how to love, no one taught you how to love somebody. Just, just love her like, like you'd pursue and love money. This is how the love of God is shown through the bride of Christ. Look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 on the screen. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Like, there should be some sacrifice involved. There should be pursuit. There, there should be a treatment there that says, you are prized, you are treasured, you are worthy to give myself up for, to show you how valuable you are to me. May, may you care for those in a relationship sacrificially as Christ has done for you. You know, with God's Spirit, we can have this kind of commitment. Here's the fourth. Fourth, I commit to protect you. You know, there's going to be a day when storms are going to come into the relationship, and that person that you're with is going to look to take cover, and may they find cover in your arms. May you be the one they can count on when the storms come. Protection means safety. Did you know that? Protection means safety. It means that they know that they can come to you. They know they'll be safe. May, may you be the voice of encouragement in your relationship. May you be the one that's doing the defending rather than the offending. Because when you're that person, you become the source of protection. Parents, spouses, children, friends, I think it's time that we start standing up for one another. This world is a, is, 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 can be a despicable place at times. It can be a very hurtful, painful place to live. And it's time that we just start protecting one another. Because there's too many people out to harm us. Not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. Let's start arming up. And getting each other's backs. You know, many years ago, more than a decade ago, this church was navigating some turbulent waters. Some, some changes were being instituted. Some radical changes even. Some ministry philosophies were being changed. The methodologies were being changed. And there was only two of us on staff. There was myself and a secretary. I was the biggest and easiest target for people that had disdain for the changes to just say, I hate this guy because he's instituting the changes and I'm going to take him down, knock every blow I can, knock out his teeth if I can do that. I'm just going to try to wallop him. 
But you know, I didn't feel many of those blows. I didn't feel hardly any of those blows because I had some wonderful elders who stood up and guarded me. And they took the blows. And in that relationship, they allowed themselves to take the hits to protect me. And that's led to an 18-year ministry with all of you. Because you're able to commit and to be loyal to people that stand up and protect you. And so when they give a word of advice, it's taken to heart. When they talk, I shut up and listen. You want to know why? Because when people protect, it leads to trust. And isn't trust so key in a relationship? If trust is there, you'll be willing to go just about anywhere with somebody. Because while they protect, they earn my trust. And just think about the ways you can earn trust back in that relationship that's been broken. That relationship that has been undergirded with trust and has been worn away. You start protecting, people are going to recognize you're a safe place. And even there might be some hesitancy there as trust is trying to be regained. You keep protecting because protection ushers in trust. You know, God shows total commitment. Romans chapter 8, or 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were breaking trust, God was providing protection. While we were misleading ourselves into sin and to our downfall, God says, I'm still going to protect you from the pains of dying in your sins. And here is the amazing thing about God. He protects and offers to cover your sins through Christ's blood, no matter how many times you push him away and refuse his salvation. He's made an agreement to protect you. Here's the last thing. Fifth, I commit to purify you. There's going to be a time when those you love and are loyal to hurt you. And this is when you have, uh, this, uh, this is when those who have done the hurt I think need you the most. And this is not about people extending the olive branch to you because they hurt you and they need to say they're sorry. This is about you quickly going to them and saying, I forgive you. Showing some mercy. People need forgiveness. They need mercy. And, and with God's spirit, you can supply this. And so who in, your world, who in your world needs to hear that even though they've hurt you, you've forgiven them? Who needs that? Because they're not going to find that at the job. They're not going to find that in a classroom. They're not going to find that anywhere else. They need to hear from you that they've been forgiven. They need to hear from you that the grudge is no longer there. And you're saying, but they haven't extended that olive branch. I know. They need your forgiveness. But they haven't said they're sorry. I know. But they need your forgiveness because I commit to purifying you. It's not about you. It's about me. And even though you haven't said sorry, I've already forgiven you for that. You can purify the relationship when you forgive. That's what Jesus has done. When you made a mess of the relationship with God by doing your own thing and not allowing him to be a part of your life, he didn't wait for you to say sorry. He purified the relationship. He said, look, you're not going to pin this on me. Any disdain that you have here is not going to be for me. I forgive you. You know where I stand. I love you. I'm pursuing you. I'm not going to let you walk away from this. And if you want to walk away, it's on your own accord. But you're not going to be able to look to me and say, it's all his fault. You see, God knew that you needed forgiveness. He knew that I needed forgiveness. 
God knew that you needed mercy, and so he gave you mercy. And he wants you to respond to forgiveness. He wants you to respond to this grace. And friends, if there's anything that God could say to you right now, it's, I love you, I always have, and I always will. He's purified the relationship, and he's ready for you to just accept it. This is what God's done through Jesus. And here's how it's kind of like illustrated through the relationship that we have as married people. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it to make it belong to God. Christ used the word to make the church clean by washing it with water. Are you seeing the purifying acts here? He died so that he could give the church to himself like a bride in all her beauty. He died so that the church could be pure without fault, with no evil or sin or any other wrong thing in it. And though you may not see yourself that way, as pure, as perfect, this is how God sees you. This is how God desires for you to see yourself in this relationship. He forgives your sins so that you could be made spiritually clean, perfectly pure. 